KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval, with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. Racial equity is a goal of California's new state vaccine safety panel. They've already begun to uh, develop what I think is an equitable way to uh, distribute the uh, vaccine. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A review of climate action plans across the country pinpoints transportation as the major challenge. But we cannot stop the climate problem without much bigger cuts across the entire nation, ultimately across the whole globe. And so the whole goal here is for to get the lessons learned by the pioneers out into the rest of the country, ultimately the rest of the world. New polling says military voters may be changing their political preference, and history and old movies find parallels with today and the rise of political manipulation. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. A COVID vaccine developed by Pfizer Pharmaceutical and the German company BioNTech is in late-stage testing. If the vaccine is approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, Pfizer says the vaccine could be ready for distribution by late November. But that is only the beginning of the effort that lies ahead to provide a safe, effective, and trusted vaccine to the public. This week, Governor Gavin Newsom announced that before any vaccine is distributed in California, a statewide panel of experts will review its safety. Two San Diego physicians are among the 11-member panel, which will also determine how a vaccine is rolled out in California. It will take place, Newsom said, at the speed of trust. Joining me is one of the San Diego doctors on the state vaccine safety panel. Dr. Rodney Hood is president and founder of the Multicultural Health Foundation, a consortium of health providers serving San Diego County's most diverse neighborhoods. And Dr. Hood, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. What do you understand as the mission of California's vaccine review panel? Well, the mission really is to uh, render independent opinion of any vaccine that's uh, recommended by the FDA. And the purpose for that is that, uh, as you know, over the past several months, there's been a a lot of uh, confusion with messages uh, coming from the uh, governmental agencies as far as COVID activity vaccines. I think the whole term of warp speed, getting the term out there when you talk with the people in the community, 
that doesn't really build a lot of trust that the vaccine would be safe. Will you be conducting your own testing trials as a part of this review panel? No, this uh, panel is not there to uh, do their own testing. It's really just to look at the data that the uh, FDA has looked at as far as rendering uh, whether the vaccine is safe. So for instance, will the vaccine has it been tested in a large enough of the uh, population? Number two, has it been tested in a diverse uh, population? Uh, there are many uh, trials out there, not just with uh, vaccines that uh, are not tested in a diverse population. And we know sometimes there are differences in populations and how they react to uh, various medications and uh, vaccines. And is it effective? Um, what is the data showing that it's effective? So those are the things we're gonna be looking at. Speaking of have enough people of different races been involved in the test trials, it's, it's known that African-Americans and Latinos have been hit disproportionately hard by COVID-19. Access to medical care and a history of exploitation, in particular in medical research and still existing racism in medical treatment, they all continue to undermine trust in medical care for many communities of color. How concerned are you that this will impact these communities' decisions to get the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, you know, that's really why um, uh, I've been advocating for this. And this is uh, one of the reasons why I think I was uh, added to the trial, because we have been raising at the COVID equity uh, task force here in San Diego. I'm also on a other national uh, task force, the National Medical Association task force. And the whole issue is that we realize there's a bit of trust. I think the last data that I saw several months ago, when you asked the population, would you take a uh, COVID uh, vaccine? Um, it, it was like 70% of whites said they would and about 65% of blacks said they would. Well, the, they, they repeated that study and it went down to about 43% of the black community said that they would accept the vaccine. So it's a whole issue of trust due to what I, the, the uh, legacy and history of, uh, of testing uh, inappropriately in African-American uh, community. And then the confusion that's uh, coming from the uh, national agencies about uh, whether something is uh, safe or not. So I think it's uh, critical that they have what we call trusted messages that are looking at the data. Um, how do I determine whether it's a, a trusted uh, messenger? Well, would I take it? Do I feel safe taking that vaccine? And would I recommend it for my own family? How can California ensure that a COVID vaccine is distributed equitably among the population? So I, I love some of the uh, preliminary uh, recommendations uh, that actually started uh, at the National uh, Academy of uh, Science talking about equitable distribution of treatment. And I think uh, the state of California and the governor has adopted uh, many of those uh, principles is, as far as first, uh, first line uh, workers, at risk populations. So uh, they've already begun to uh, develop what I think is an equitable way to uh, distribute the uh, vaccine. Do you foresee, doctor, an effective vaccine bringing back life as we used to know it in California? Well, I think it's one of the tools. Um, 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 I think there's a lot we're learning about this uh, virus. Um, and um, from uh, we're going to be looking at various uh, vaccines. 
but from my uh, knowledge and the vaccines that are actually talking about the coming out, I don't know that the vaccine alone is going to uh, solve the problem, but I think it's going to be one of the tools. So for instance, uh, is the vaccine going to be effective for several months, a year, two years? That's going to be uh, critical. Um, uh, and uh, how effective is it? Is it like the a flu vaccine many times is only 30, 40, 50% effective? What is the effectiveness of the um, uh, COVID vaccine? We don't have those answers. So I think there's going to be multiple other things we're going to have to be uh, looking at. And I think for a while, vaccine or no vaccine, we're still going to have to be practicing wear a mask, wash your hands, social distancing. They work. I've been speaking with Dr. Rodney Hood, president and founder of the Multicultural Health Foundation. He is one of the San Diego doctors who've been appointed to the state vaccine safety panel. And Dr. Hood, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. What's the state of climate action plans in 100 major U.S. cities? A new report out today tackles that question, and among its findings, 45 cities, including San Diego, L.A., and San Francisco, have good binding plans. If their targets are reached, those cities would reduce the amount of emissions equal to taking 79 million cars off the road. But most cities aren't doing nearly enough. Joining me to explain is one of the report's authors. David Victor is Professor of International Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. David, welcome back to Midday Edition. Mark, it's great to be back. Well, what was the question you were looking into that resulted in this report? What were you trying to find out? Well, we've seen a big shift in policy action on climate change to the heartland, away from Washington, D.C., and to the cities and to the states. And we just wanted to know whether or not it was having an impact. And that's an important question right now because we've had four years of essentially no federal policy on climate change rollbacks. And so we're seeing more pressure to get things done locally, but then also ultimately we have to look at what the numbers uh, what the numbers say. And, and as you said in your intro, half of the cities are, aren't really doing anything. And so that's, that's worrisome. We have to therefore pay a lot closer attention to the cities like San Diego that are doing a lot uh, because they're gonna be the pioneers that are gonna help bring along the rest of the country. And how do the plans and actions taken in San Diego and in the state of California compare with other large US cities? California is doing really well. The, of the cities that have already achieved big reductions, the top six, half of them are Californian. Uh, it's San Francisco, it's LA, it's, it's San Diego. In some sense, the San Diego actions are the most interesting because um, we're grappling directly with the problems that all the other cities are really having a hard time dealing with. What do we do about sprawl? Uh, emissions from automobiles. And this is an area where California is going to be very helpful because there's only so much that a city by itself can do. Uh, if, it, if it doesn't have access, for example, to cleaner vehicles, to, to support for, for electric vehicle charging infrastructure, things like that. And, and now California is lining up that support. And San Diego and the other California cities, are they cooperating and working well with the state? I think they're cooperating and working very well. I think the bigger challenge is it's not so much that people don't know they need to do more. It's that individual cities only have limited leverage in what they can actually achieve uh, at, at home. And, and, and that's, that's really where, where we need to learn more about how to, how to make the existing efforts a lot more effective. California is really lined up. The political support across California is bipartisan. If anything, the Trump administration has, has amplified that support because it's really popular 
to be uh, in favor of climate action, given what's going on in the White House. That's true for a lot of other areas of policy. And, and having stable polit political support is just vitally important for these long-term missions. And transportation is the most vexing problem. What solutions are working best? Is California's push to get rid of gas-powered vehicles, for example? Is that as bold a step as it sounds? It is. I mean, it'll be the nation's leading program. My guess is it's going to be largely successful. Uh, California is working on two fronts. One front is on electric, on light-duty vehicles, cars. There, I think we're going to be very successful. The, the playbook for that was formed by the California Air Resources Board in the 1990s. It's a very effective playbook. The harder problem is going to be uh, heavier vehicles, tr uh, freight, and so on. There, the technological solutions are not yet obvious. Electricity might be one, hydrogen, uh, natural gas, or at least decarbonized natural gas. There are a lot of different options, and, and, and that's, that's where we need to, to pay closer attention to which technologies are actually going to be the winners. And the fact that less than half of all the large U.S. cities are taking any steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that's frightening. Do you think this report will spur some action on their part? How can we get other cities to participate? Well, that's our hope. Is Our, our, our report wants to celebrate what the pioneers are doing, like San Diego, L.A., San Francisco, many others, Greensboro but then also put a, put a lot more pressure on the, on the cities that aren't doing as much. When you add up the, all the efforts of the pioneers over the next decade or so, they're gonna be cutting US emissions maybe 4%. So that's a contribution, but we cannot stop the climate problem without much bigger cuts across the entire nation, ultimately across the whole globe. And so the whole goal here is for, to get the lessons learned by the pioneers out into the rest of the country, ultimately the rest of the world. And tonight, Donald Trump and Joe Biden face off in their final debate. Voting ends in about 10 days. Climate change is an existential threat to all life on the planet. These candidates could not be further apart. Has this critical issue gotten the attention it deserves in this election year? It's had a huge amount of attention. It's been a big issue for the Democratic Party during the primary. Uh, we've had already more attention to this issue in the debates than at any other time in American history. So all of that's good news. But Ultimately, the differences between the two candidates are huge. I think if we have a second Trump administration, we're going to see even more of the action shift to state and local level. If we see a Biden administration, we're going to see action at the state and local level, but hopefully more federal support. And uh, cities and states can't do it alone. It's going to take worldwide leadership from the United States government, right? I think absolutely. I think that's going to be key. If Biden wins... Uh, they very quickly are going to rejoin the Paris Agreement. But in some sense, that's the easy thing to do. The rest of the world is going to be looking at the United States and saying, well, do we believe you? Are you you're back in? Or are you going to stay in? And that's one of the reasons why these city and state measures are so important is because they're harder to reverse. And so they're part of how the United States as a country as a whole sends a signal to the rest of the world that we're serious. And of course, also going on with the debate and the election and everything is the uh, the Senate, the Republicans in the Senate are pushing through another Supreme Court justice here. And a lot has been said about how this Supreme Court could hamper regulations that the executive orders from, say, a Biden administration uh, could have a great impact on uh, regarding climate change and climate action. Are you fearful about the, the courts and uh, what's uh, setting up there in Washington? I'm a little bit fearful that the, any action, regulatory action by the Biden administration is going to be challenged. It could be that the legal basis for, for example, actions under the Clean Air Act was taken under the Obama administration. That legal basis is taken away. Bigger leverage is going to be coming from outside Washington. And also it'll come from Washington if you see new legislation passed. So if, if not only Biden wins, but the Democrats take the House and the Senate 
and we see the, the capacity to pass new laws, then there's going to be a lot of new arrangements to, to focus on the climate problem. And finally, uh, getting back to your report, how did you and the other researchers get your data? Well, it's a data-rich environment right now. There's a lot of information about the individual cities. The team pulled all that together uh, for all of the 100 uh, leading cities in the, in the United States. The, the report also points to a lot of problems we have with the methods for doing this kind of analysis, because ultimately what we're trying to do is understand how the actions taken by mayors affect emissions compared to what would have happened otherwise. Well, it's an ambitious report, and I'd encourage everyone to take a look at it. It's, uh, it can be found on kpbs.org. We'd link to it there. I've been speaking with David Victor, Professor of International Relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, and an author of this new report on climate action plans in American cities. Thanks, David. Well, thank you very much. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Mark Sauer, along with Maureen Cavanaugh. The Careworn Midway District has long been home to strip malls, strip clubs, and a half-century-old sports arena that was hardly a gem even on the day it opened. The district is on the cusp of a transformation, but just how that will play out largely will be determined by the fate of Measure E on the San Diego ballot. Joining me to explain is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hi, thanks, Mark. So at issue here is a height restriction dating back nearly 50 years. First, tell us where this district is and explain how the 30-foot limitation on buildings there came into being. Well, Midway is bordered by the I-8 freeway to the north, uh, the San Diego airport to the south. Uh, The east boundary is I-5, and the western boundary zigzags a little bit, but it's basically where uh, Point Loma starts, the peninsula. Um, The city planners saw this as a good place for growth, not just because of the blight that you mentioned, but also because, uh, you know, and also the vacant or underdeveloped lots in in Midway, but also because of its location. It's close to the downtown job center, uh, the Old Town Transit Center just across the freeway. Um, So, you know, this this, uh, area was uh, upzoned, you know, zoned for much more high-density housing in 2018. The uh, 30-foot height limit was the result of the 1972 Citizens Initiative, uh, which applies to all of the neighborhoods west of I-5, excluding downtown. And at the time, the residents were concerned about runaway development along the coast, and they wanted to limit the building height to preserve the views of the coast. Uh, Measure E supporters, however, say that this I-5 boundary was arbitrary and that Midway being a landlocked uh, neighborhood without any direct beach access doesn't really belong in the same category as a La Jolla or a Pacific Beach or Point Loma where uh, those coastal views uh, needed protecting at that time. And the city has an agreement with a developer group to redevelop the Pechanga Arena property in the middle of the Midway district. Give us the overview of that plan and why it relies so much on getting that height limit to be removed. 
Yeah, the uh, Pachanga Arena, or the sports arena as it used to be known, is part of uh, 48 acres that the city owns and wants to redevelop. The arena itself is actually much taller than 65 feet because it was built before the height limit was imposed in 1972. So if that arena were to be torn down, it would be illegal for the city to rebuild it as it is. So that's one reason why um, I, the, I think the mayor is supporting Measure E, is he he wants to, you know, if, if the city wants a new arena... It will have to um, eliminate this um, 30-foot height limit. The plan for the entire property also envisions uh, parkland, denser development with housing, retail, office space, etc. And so the city is still in talks with the development team that they um, chose. Uh, But it's likely that the city would still own the land and lease it out to developers. And the goal is to catalyze redevelopment in the area and also make the property more lucrative for the taxpayers. So allowing taller development on that property is one way to accomplish that because, you know, you'd you'd have more uh, rent paying tenants on the on the land and, um, you know, more money coming into the city through a, a lease deal. And as this plan stands now, how high would the new buildings be compared with what's in that area now? Well, there aren't any specific proposals yet for the new development, uh, either on the Pachanga Arena site or anywhere else in Midway, above 30 feet, because, um, you know, Measure E hasn't been decided yet. Uh, There are height limits and other regulations uh, set by the zoning in the community plan update, and it depends on the particular parcel of land. Some of them are actually limited to 30 feet, so uh, those you know wouldn't necessarily change. Uh, other parcels could go up to 65 feet. Others could go as high as 100 feet. Although that's uh, I, I've been told at least it's about 15 percent of the entire area um, has the highest height limit of 100 feet. It's also noteworthy that many of these lots in Midway are constrained by the size of the parcel and other regulations on the scale of what could be built there. So, you know, uh, if if you build a taller building, you might have to go a more slender, which would allow for a little bit more open space. And that's another uh, reason why some uh, people support uh, Measure E is that, you know, it would allow for buildings to go up and rather than out and, and be sort of a shortened squat building. Plays right into the city's climate action plan and uh, limiting sprawl and transportation, as it were. Now, who is behind Measure E? It has a lot of backing, right? Measure E really originated from the neighborhood planning group. They had been kind of lobbying for this for quite some time. The chairwoman, Kathy Kenton, has been a cheerleader for uh, raising the height limit for years. And at a meeting earlier this year, they really urged their council member, Jen Campbell, to uh, bring this issue to the city council and ultimately place it on the ballot. And she did that in partnership with council member Chris Kate. Since then, uh, it's been endorsed, as I mentioned, by Mayor Kevin Faulkner, uh, by both the Republican and Democratic parties of San Diego County, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the San Diego and Imperial County's Labor Council, uh, the building industry, other unions, uh, the San County Taxpayers Association, the Climate Action Campaign, um, it's probably got the most institutional backing of any measure on the city's ballot this election. And what about the opposition? Who's opposed? It's mostly individuals. There's um, a small uh, official no campaign committee, although it doesn't have a whole lot of money. It's opposed by Councilmember Barbara Bree, who's also running for mayor, and she's not campaigning against this, but she says she is voting against it. Uh, former Councilmember Donna Fry, the head of the Save San Diego Neighborhoods organization, which is mostly active in opposing Airbnb and short-term home rentals. 
the chair of the original 1972 height limit measure, the committee that placed that on the ballot, is also opposed to it. So a smaller group, but, um, you know, they're certainly out there. Well, Measure E's uh, going to be another one we'll be watching come November 3rd in our KBBS election coverage. I've been speaking with KBBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Two lawyers, one a Republican, the other a Democrat, are battling to represent San Diego City Council District 5. The district covers northern San Diego neighborhoods, including Black Mountain Ranch, Scripps Ranch, Rancho Bernardo, and Rancho Penasquitos. Republican Joe Leventhal and Democrat Marnie Von Wilpert share similar positions on several issues, but their differences on rent relief and housing density could influence the direction of San Diego's next city council. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. And Claire, welcome. Thank you so much. District 5 has been thought of as a predominantly Republican part of the city. Is that still the case? That's right. I mean, it's historically always been represented by a series of Republicans, um, including Carl DeMaio. I think it's still thought of as the most uh, Republican district, but by now it's actually um, fairly balanced with 36 percent of the voters are registered as Democrats, 31 percent are Republicans, and 28 are no party preference. And then Right now, it's held by uh, Mark Kersey, who's termed out, and he was elected as a Republican, but has since become a no-party preference voter. So if a Democrat wins in this race, it would give the Democrats one more seat on the the council. So tell us about these candidates. Uh, What's the background of Marnie Von Wilpert? Sure. So she uh, grew up in Scripps Ranch. Um, But then she left to get her undergrad from UC Berkeley and her law degree uh, from Fordham University. And then she's kind of been all over the place. She served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Botswana and then um, lived in Mississippi for a while where she founded a a legal clinic um, called the Mississippi Center for Justice. And then she moved back to San Diego and now she works as a deputy city attorney. And uh, I know he's a lawyer, (laughs) but what's Republican Joe Leventhal's background? Sure. So he grew up in the Los Angeles area, um, and then he went to UC San Diego. He left to get his law degree from Georgetown University, Um, but now he's been living in San Diego for a while. Uh, He founded his own law firm, I think, eight years ago, and then his political involvement is that he served on the San Diego Ethics Commission. That's the city commission. I mentioned the somewhat similar positions the candidates share on some issues. Both are opposed to defunding the police. What does Von Wilpert say about that? Right. So she pointed out that she works in law enforcement as a prosecutor um, working for the city attorney. And so she has a good working relationship with police. Um, And so she says that they really need support and funding, not defunding. I also want to make sure that we are not burdening our officers with problems that are not criminal. You know, we shouldn't, the only response to homeless individuals should not be a 911 call with police officers. Now you say Joe Leventhal agrees the police should not be first responders for mental health calls, but does he support any police reforms? Well, he's also uh, very much not in favor of defunding the police, um, but he says he'd support additional training, including uh, de-escalation training. Um, So here's a little more of what he said about that. Every institution needs to be looking at how to improve, and 
figure out ways that we get rid of any implicit bias uh, in our in our department. The issue of potential city budget cutting finds some differences between these candidates. Joe Leventhal told you he would support cutting overtime for some city employees. Right. So he said that he would look for cuts um, by making city services more efficient. Um, and he points to data showing that the number of general employees in the, in the city has grown by uh, 20 percent over the past decade, while police and fire have only grown by 6 percent. So he wouldn't want to make any cuts there. Um, he explained a little bit more about the overtime. Here's what he said. So I would really want to maintain our current service levels in our police and fire. Uh, it may mean that we are saving money by trying to reduce overtime which frankly might mean hiring additional police and firefighters. Marty Von Wilpert takes another attack when it comes to city budget cutting. Right. Um, she also said she would not cut from police or fire departments, but she would look to cut outside vendors. Um, and that seems to be a common talking point I've heard among different Democrats this year. Uh, so here's, here's what she said. We spend over $200 million a year on outside services that we really could bring in-house, such as you know, legal services, or um, architects surveying planning issues. Democrat Marnie Von Wilpert came in first in the March primary. So does she still have the momentum? Well, yeah, yeah it's interesting because she came in slightly ahead of Leventhal with about uh, almost 40 percent of the vote compared to his almost 37 percent of the vote. And the third place finisher was a Democrat, Isaac Wang. So you would think, well, maybe all of his votes are then going to go to Marnie Von Wilpert. But the wrinkle in that is that Isaac Wang actually endorsed Joe Leventhal. Um, so I think it's it's not entirely clear. And Leventhal is slightly out fundraising uh, Von Wilpert at this point. So I think this is going to be one of those really close races that maybe we won't know the resolution to for uh, a few days. Okay, then. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Claire, thank you. Thank you. A lot of people are voting by mail for the first time, but military personnel have been doing it since the Civil War. This year, as troops fill out their ballots, some polls suggest their political preferences may be changing. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh reports for the American Homefront Project. In a year when millions of people are expected to vote by mail, overseas troops were among the first to receive their ballots. Federal law requires that they go out at least 45 days before the election. San Diego County Register of Voters Michael Vu has been getting ready for weeks. So this is our tabulation room right here. All the mail ballots will be processed and scanned in there. San Diego County is one of 11 counties in the U.S. that have over 10,000 military and overseas absentee voters. Vu says there has never been a hint of widespread fraud, though not every ballot comes back in time to be counted. Federal law does make it a bit easier for these voters to vote absentee. For instance, overseas military voters are the only California voters who can return their ballots by fax. In many cases, we don't know what the status of that military and overseas voter is. Uh, could they be potentially on a ship that doesn't necessarily have a good transmission when it comes down to fax? Even with the extra measures over the last two presidential elections, military personnel actually voted at a lower percentage than other absentee voters, both in San Diego County and nationally. And this election, polls showed this block of voters is more in play than in previous elections. 
A Military Times poll in August showed Joe Biden with the lead with President Trump's approval ratings well below what it had been at the start of his term. Ed Yokley is a senior reporter with Morning Consult, which has been tracking military and veteran households. And military families are not unlike the rest of the electorate. I mean, we're seeing um, Joe Biden do better with older folks and with white folks and with men um, across the board. This group has typically been a reliable part of the Republican base, and in some ways it still is. Morning Consult polled veterans and active duty households after a bombshell article in The Atlantic reported the president had called people who serve losers and suckers. Morning Consult found support for the president holding steady. He was still leading among military and veteran households. I think we've seen with um, white voters and with men who are sort of the Trump base, um, not a whole lot has moved their views um, across the board over the last four years. One thing that did hurt the president in the polls was his talk of sending the military to quell civil unrest or to monitor the elections. Back from Walter Reed Medical Center after being diagnosed with COVID-19, Trump tweeted a video message to military voters. We got everybody pay increases, three of them. There's never seen anything like what I've done for the military. For most candidates, it's hard to target military voters directly. Regulations make it difficult to hold events on base. Democrat Doug Applegate, a retired Marine, ran for Congress in 2016 and 2018. The district includes the sprawling Camp Pendleton in Southern California, where more than 36,000 people live on base. I wouldn't go on base. I was asked that on occasion, and I thought that um, that, that regulation was well-founded because I don't think that the, that the military needs to be sucked into to politics. They may not even vote where they're based, making it even harder to target them, says Applegate, who didn't win a seat in Congress in two tries. He said these voters tend to be conservative, but not always. And though they may be insulated from the job market. I think they look at the economy just like everybody else. Is it good? Because active duty military still buy homes. They still live in the community where they're stationed at. Applegate says national security is also important to military voters. They tend to size up who will do the best job of being their commander-in-chief. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This election year, California voters will decide on Proposition 17, a ballot measure that, if passed, would restore voting rights to people on parole. That's a period of state supervision that occurs after inmates leave prison. KQED politics reporter Guy Maserati explains the history that's led us to Prop 17. Voting rights was a hot topic at California's 1849 Constitutional Convention. Delegates in Monterey debated whether to allow former Mexican citizens, American Indians, and recently arrived gold miners to vote in the new state. But they spent little time debating the voting rights of former inmates. The delegates quietly passed a constitutional amendment banning people convicted of infamous crimes from voting. But what was an infamous crime? Infamy is an incredibly complicated concept even back then. That's Pippa Holloway, professor of history at the University of Richmond, whose research has focused on felony disenfranchisement. Infamy was such a flexible term. 
a poorly misunderstood term, a term that could be um, kind of manipulated in various ways statutorily. In California, infamy usually meant felony, but the law wasn't very clear. Fast forward to 1966, when the state Supreme Court applied a new interpretation that infamous crimes should be those that literally affect the election, that people convicted of assault or abuse don't threaten the ballot box. That's kind of a narrow, although I think really distinctly modern interpretation of what infamy means. But that interpretation didn't last. In 1974, California voters approved Proposition 10, which allowed former inmates to vote after their parole term was completed. It also removed the vague term infamous crime and instead stripped voting rights for anyone convicted of a felony. Again, Pippa Holloway. There's a a gradual kind of a rejection of these old ideas about infamy and morality and more of an understanding that a felony is a felony, the worst of the worst are felons, and that there's a fairly clear line between the length of your incarceration and the um, kind of moral or social impact of your crime. Stripping voting rights for felony convictions while California's incarceration rates were going up disproportionately disenfranchised Black and Latino Californians. It's why State Assemblyman Kevin McCarty, a Democrat from Sacramento, has referred to the state's current ban on parolee voting as a modern-day poll tax. If you look at their percentage of people who who are on parole and can't vote, um, you know, they are people of color. McCarty wrote Proposition 17 to restore the right to vote to parolees. Opponents, like North State Senator Jim Nielsen, say California's parole population has shrunk and now contains only serious offenders. They then, with the franchise to vote, they become more full participant in society. Society that they've already shown their disdain for Proposition 17 is a fairly limited proposal. Unlike Maine and Vermont, which never strip inmates of their right to vote, California would only restore voting rights to eligible voters on parole if Prop 17 passes, which currently would affect about 40,000 people. That story from KQED politics reporter Guy Maserati. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. There is an old saying about those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That prompted Cal State San Marcos history professor Kimber Quinney to look back to the rise of fascism in Italy because she saw some troubling parallels. KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando speaks with Quinney about the lessons we can learn from history. Kimber, you teach history at Cal State San Marcos. And tell me a little bit about your field of study before we go into an article that you have uh, written recently. Uh, I am assistant professor of history at Cal State San Marcos, and my field is the history of U.S. foreign relations. So I'm very interested 
in the ways in which the United States relates to the rest of the world. I teach about the history of the presidency as, as well, so I count myself as a political historian. Uh, but my focus is U.S.-Italian relations. That's my doctoral research. And I'm particularly interested in the ways in which Italians resisted fascism, so the resistance movement. But also, I listen very carefully to the voices of Italian refugees who were forced to flee fascism, many of whom came to the United States and, and wrote a lot about the Italian fascist experience. So, so that's my background. I found an article on the internet that you had written in 2016, and it was titled, Donald Trump is no Mussolini, but liberal democracy could still be in danger. And that really intrigued me. So first of all, what prompted you to write that article? And let me just point out first and foremost, and as an historian, I, I'm hesitant to use the word fascism to describe contemporary politics either globally or in the United States. And, and that's because in my mind, uh, fascism originated in Italy in a specific place in a specific time, 1922. And what became Mussolini's version of fascism was very different to Hitler's version of Nazism. And in, in my mind, to the dictatorial regimes that we're seeing in the 21st century. So I, I want to be really frank about that part of it. The scholars that I look at and that I quote in the article, uh, Max Ascoli and Gaetano Salvamini, warned Americans to be aware of the potential threat of fascism and the conditions that give rise to it. And, and that sort of more systemic perspective, I, I think, uh, is relevant. But I also, as I point out in the article, I also want to learn from history, from the Italian case in particular. And there are some trends in Italy in the 1920s that gave rise to fascism that resonate. And that's, that's what I focus on in the article. And now we are four years later, and I'm just wondering how you feel right now, having written that article and kind of referencing history, and what do you see that maybe we need to be kind of looking at? Sadly, I think the conditions that the Italians uh, at the time, in the 1930s, warned about are, are similar to those that we're experiencing uh, in 2020. And in particular, one of the messages that the, the, the refugee scholars brought with regard to the Italian experience was that uh, fascism thrives in chaos. Fascism thrives in conflict. So one of the refugees that you studied or whose work came up is Max Ascoli. And he had a really interesting quote, I thought, about what he described as the fascist technique. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that. Ascoli was a Jewish-Italian refugee, and he describes this technique of intentionally and strategically creating constant social unrest, endless political insecurity, and, and he describes it as, quote, the cost of politics. What he suggests is that the fascist regime was very uh, focused in its efforts to break down a sense of national community, and the result was a panicked individuals feeling harassed, feeling burdened by the divisions between and among them. And ultimately, according to Ascoli, Italians were reduced to being in conflict. And as a consequence, the cost of politics, as he describes it, reached an unendurable level. And ultimately, Italians were ready to accept what, what Ascoli called the, quote, fascist peace. Italian fascism was not caused by a coup or a revolution and it wasn't, quote, reactionary in any regard whatsoever. In fact, it really came into being through bureaucracy, through, through democratic legislation that existed in the state in Italy, 
And so it was implemented through democratic structures. And in fact, the fascist state leveraged laws and took advantage of democracy in Italy in order to push forward a, a very illiberal, undemocratic regime. Can you talk a little bit about the role that the press played in all this and in, in the lead up to fascism in Italy? Uh, Mussolini was a journalist. So what's interesting about Mussolini's background is that he was very clever and well, well versed at using the press to, to his advantage. And uh, that's not coincidental, I think, in the way in which uh, he managed to do that. Authoritarian regimes thrive on falsehoods and conspiracy theories. And we witnessed this in the Italian case. So not only was the press censored, and of course the fascist regime worked very hard to get certain messages out to the Italian people, but it was also skewed. It was also exaggerated. It was also manipulated to create, again, as Escoli would, would call it, the, the, the cost or the burden of, of, of politics that were multiplied by the messages that the Italian uh, fascist regime put out to the Italian people. And so, again, it's, it's the ways in which uh, fascism in Italy attempted to break down democracy, hollow it out from the inside out, using democratic regimes and, and legislation, and not in an illegal way, but finding ways to mm, eliminate democracy piece by piece. And the press was an, a, a tool for doing that. One of the things that Ascoli also addressed was this notion of that democracy is something that needs to be protected and people need to understand kind of how it works in order to keep it going. It seems so obvious that really the, the necessity to, to protect and strengthen democracy against fascism, that seems so straightforward, but it's another way of looking at the problem. And so when Ascoli came to the United States, he, he wrote a lot to warn Americans about the potential vulnerability of even American democracy to fascist tendencies. He toured in the 1930s with Dorothy Thompson around the nation talking about this very phenomenon that the most formidable enemy to fascism, according to Ascoli and others, was in fact a strong democracy. And so he spent a lot of time and effort in his writing, public writing, to remind Americans that we needed to learn more about democracy and what makes it work in order to fight potential threats such as fascism. So what would be a key point, looking back at Italy in the 1930s, that you would want to point out to people and say like, hey, this is something maybe you want to think about now? Fascism in Italy uh, did not occur in an international vacuum. We need reminding of this, that, that there was a global environment, the conditions that gave rise to Italian fascism were not limited to the state. Fascism had a direct relationship to political, economic, and social conditions. And those were insecurities, economic crises, deep-seated divisions politically after the First World War. And so for me, when I remind my students as an historian, I want to remind them that the historical conditions can help us appreciate the environment that was created in these conditions that converged to, to put democracy at risk. And so if we can look not only at strengthening our democratic institutions and voting, but really take a hard look at some of the conditions that are existing globally that are giving rise to an erosion of, of, of these democratic principles. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Cal State San Marcos history professor Kimber Quinney. You can hear them talk about Italian films that look to the rise of fascism on Beth's Cinema Junkie podcast.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how.